From Nashville, Tennessee, it's the weekly Grace Church Nashville podcast. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at Grace Church Nash and use the hashtag located in the podcast description. And now here's Larry Day with this week's message. Here at the beginning of the year, we're going to take a few weeks. We're going to try to retool while Lendl's taking a little bit of a break. We're going to uh, remind ourselves of what we believe and how to live it. And we're doing this with a challenge. And the challenge is, you know, are we living what we claim to believe? Now, We're going to look at real-life applications to our faith. We're going to get our instruction from a man who was living in times that I think are as difficult as ours, as troubling as ours. Certainly the technology was not as bad. He might not have processed as much information uh, at, at, at the same time as we get thrown. But the times were just as troubling. Um... So we're going to turn to the, to the writings of one of the sons of Mary. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago. This is the half-brother of, of Jesus. We're going to see what James has to say uh, that could be applicable to us this year in 2023. So you can read the book of James in about 30 minutes. This is, this is not a, a big read, okay? So I would challenge you to uh, read it through once a day. While we're teaching through it. Uh, this is the only book of the Bible. Because it's small. <laughs> Me and my son Samuel. We memorized it years ago. And it was you know. It's just thoughts that pop into your brain all the time. Get this into your heart. It's an excellent uh, word. Like I said myself. Derek and Lynette. Will be teaching through this. And we're each taking a theme. From a chapter in, in each. Uh, from each of the chapters in this book. And we're highlighting it. And asking that question, you know, are we living what we claim to believe? So I'm going first. And it's January 1st, and uh, it's the first Sunday of the year. Everything's the first here. So I'm going first, and what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to set up this book. I'm going to give you some context, and then we'll look at something. But let me start by saying that the way we determine if something has value the way that we figure out if something is authentic. You go down to the bank with your $100 bill, and they might take out a little pen and make a mark on it, right? They're not just scribbling on it, right? Uh, if you want to find out if your diamond is real, if you want to find out if that gold you have is quality or that silver you have is, is real, it goes through a process. It goes through a a, a a process of examination or testing, right? We subject the thing that we, that we think has value to testing. And we do that to affirm that what we think has value actually does have value. It's worth something. So we do that with gold and we do that with silver and we do that with gemstones so my question is, uh, how about we apply that to something way more valuable than those? How about we apply this to something that is so valuable that the Bible says that we would sell everything we have to possess it, right? The pearl of great price, Jesus, the kingdom of God, right relationship with God, eternal salvation. That's the most valuable commodity in existence. And a lot of people think they have something. They're going, oh, yeah, well, Larry, me and Jesus are good, Larry. We're, we're good. We got something going on. I'm, on. I'm on the team with the big man upstairs. There's lots of people who say, yes, they have this valuable commodity, and they say, yes, I have salvation. But a whole bunch of them, I think, sadly, are mistaken. They might have a counterfeit. They might have just been sold a bill of goods on something. They think they have what it needs, what what they need to have right relationship with God. And so they're going to answer yes to that question about 
their salvation, but they may be wrong. So I'm just saying something this valuable should be examined. It needs to be tested. Well, Larry, that's just stupid. You, you can't test salvation. I disagree with myself, apparently. I think it's a valid biblical concept. Here's some scripture. This is Psalm 17.3. You have tried my heart. You had visited me by night. You have tested me. Psalm 26.1 says, Vindicate me, O Lord. For I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. The the psalmist, he's basically going, our our relationship to God is subject to testing in order to to determine its validity. And basically asking the question, is it authentic? Is it real? What is it? Here's another, this is well known. This is Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. The psalmist is actually crying out to God to put his relationship with God to the test. That's what he's doing. Well, Larry, it doesn't count. It's Old Testament. All right, let's go to the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. That's a short sentence right there. I thought Jesus wept was the shortest one. There's one just, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Unless, indeed, you fail, fail to meet the test or to pass the test. One more, Hebrews 4.1. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you may, might fail to experience it. For this good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest, his rest. So in other words, you better take careful stock of your life and have a certain amount of healthy fear. You need to make sure that you you haven't basically been brought to the edge of salvation without without actually participating in salvation. Those kind of scriptures are all over the Bible. I just picked out a couple. But they're pointing to a, a requirement, a requirement that we have of self-examination. Good time to do it, January 1st. Right? First Sunday. Good time to do it today. And that's what we're going to do here on January 1, 2023. We're going to start a process of self-examination. If eternal salvation is, in fact, the most valuable possession that anybody can have, then it should be uh, subject to being able to prove its authenticity via a test. So what we're going to do is we're going to be talking about and looking at what, what Jesus taught what, and what James learned from Jesus and what the Holy Spirit's trying to get through our skulls this morning here in 2023. 2023. Now, Jesus, I'm going to get to James in a while. Just take me a minute, okay? <clears throat> I'll actually start in Matthew because this is what Jesus is talking about. When he, when he taught his Sermon on the Mount. At the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's leading people who think they are right with God through a series of thought processes or tests, if you will, that would prove that they were not right with God in spite of what they thought. That's what he's doing. And you can see it right at the top of his sermon. 
Uh, you can read this one every day too. This is Matthew, read the Sermon of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. You can see it in, in that sermon. He starts with what we all know as the Beatitudes. These are, these are thoughts he's thrown at them. He said, if you're going to be in my kingdom, here's, here's what you're going to have. You're going to be poor in spirit. You're, they're mourning. These people are meek. They hunger and search after righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They are peacemakers. They endure persecution from evil men. And in spite of everything, they rejoice and are exceedingly glad. We could just stop there and try to apply each one of those to our lives as a test of our salvation. But let's not. (laughs) These are attitudes that he's throwing out here. These are attitudes that go along with really being saved. So you're going to find an attitude of humility. You're going to have an awareness of our tendency to, to sin. You're going to be crying out to God for what you do not possess on your own. And all of those are, are marks or signs or uh, indicators of true salvation. So the Pharisees at the time of, of Jesus, when they looked at their lives, they were proud, they're boastful, they're self-centered, they're, you know, whatever salvation they thought that they had would not pass the test that Jesus was given that day. And because they couldn't pass that test of of, uh, attitudes. So Jesus continued in that sermon. I'm not going to go through his whole Sermon on the Mount, by the way. But he later in that sermon, past the Beatitudes, he's talking about how those who truly have a relationship with God would be like salt or they'd be like light. In other words, that, that the... Rather than the world influencing them with evil, that they will influence the world around them. So if you're saved, if you trust in Jesus, you're going to pass a test of attitude. Then you're going to pass a test of influence. Jesus doesn't stop there. He keeps preaching and he goes on and he talks more about the marks of true salvation. And he said there's going to be a mark of of a true commitment to the word of God. And that there's going to be a commitment to obedience And, of course, all of this stuff, he's not talking about just outward obedience or outward stuff. He's talking about an inward obedience and an obedience of the heart. That's the whole deal. That's what Jesus is teaching on on the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew Matthew 5. Uh, First test of salvation, your attitude. Second test of salvation, your influence. Third test, your commitment to God's word. Fourth test, your commitment to obedience to God. And all of it showing up in our heart's attitude. He's, he's going to those guys, you remember, he's going, on the outside, you know, you, you do one thing, but on the inside, you're doing something else. Uh, you say you shouldn't kill, but you're full of hate. Uh, you say you shouldn't commit adultery, but you're lusting all the time. You say you shouldn't lie, but if your lips are flapping, you're spewing lies. He's going, get on the right road to salvation. Get on the, the narrow road that leads to eternal life and get off that broad road that leads to destruction. That's his sermon on the mount. And by the way, most failed the test. Why do you say that, Larry? Because the right response to Jesus after hearing this most incredible sermon of all time would have been, Jesus, we're sinful. Jesus, we are undone. We have missed the mark. We're without God. We are lost. Jesus, help us. That would be the correct response. That's not how they responded. By the way, that was the correct response then, and that is the correct response today. We are lost. Jesus, help us. Help us. Now, like I said, I'm teaching from James. I actually started there in, in Matthew and, and pointed out the Sermon on the Mount because I've read many times that the book of James is basically like... It's almost a practical commentary of the application of the Sermon on the Mount, which I've always found kind of an interesting thought. 
The goal of James in writing his letter, his epistle, um, is the same as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is to convince his audience that their religion, um, to convince them that their religious professions and their religious activities will not benefit them at all unless they manifest true godliness from the heart. That's what James is after. Uh, And it's my conviction that this entire book of James is nothing but a series of tests for the genuineness of your salvation start to finish, the whole book. I think he wants to show us character traits of real faith, uh, the character of a living faith. You go, well, what is a true What is a true, real, genuine living faith? That's the question. That's what Jesus was concerned about. That's what he's pointing out on the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he's pointing out everywhere. That's what his brother James is concerned about. And that's what we're concerned about this morning. So I don't want to play games all the way through 2023, right? Are we or are we not living what we claim to believe? It, it really doesn't matter what you say. You, you have to be tested in the way that you live and in the things that you do to find the answers to some of these things. We are going to be tested. Just bank on it. You can see the, the same concepts that we're going to look at uh, in James. You can see this in uh, 1 John. John says this in 1 John 2, verse 3 says, We can be sure that we know him, Jesus, if we obey his commandments. Oh, man. I won't go down a bunny trail because I always get lost on them. But I said that and I thought, you know, I've read in the news somewhere. Somebody made that statement, you know, all I have to do is love God and love my neighbor. I was going, yes and no. Uh, If we love God, though, we're going to obey his commandments. So, sorry. We can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandment, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. So in there you see obedience, lying, trusting God's word. Those, those are what I just mentioned. These, these are things that are tests of the genuineness of a saving faith or of salvation. This is how we figure out, are we living what we claim to believe or not? So James is going to be giving test after test. And he's going to be asking you some hard questions. And he's going to challenge you that, you know, intellectual assent doesn't cut it. Right? Being religious doesn't cut it. Going to church, teaching children's church doesn't cut it. Singing in the choir doesn't cut it. Steve Hill used to say, I don't care if the baptismal waters are streaming off your face, you know, if your seminary degree is hanging on the wall behind you, if you don't know Jesus, it doesn't make any difference. Having an external form of godliness without the evidence of an inward transformation is an abomination. It's common. That's for sure. And we'll pat ourselves on the back. We'll congratulate ourselves on our own innate goodness all the time. And we'll just uh, go, man, I just performed that really well, you know. But guess what? All that stuff is eternally useless. It's useless. It's called the broad road that leads to destruction. And by and large, most of us probably know it intuitively. James knows that you know it. And I kind of find it interesting that, the, that in this letter that, that James writes, there's nothing in this letter 
that gets into, you know, lofty kind of theological thoughts about the essence of salvation. He's not doing Paul. He doesn't mention the cross. He doesn't mention things like the atonement or justification or regeneration, stuff like that. Not a word. And I think the reason for that is that he is clearly writing to people who say that they believe. He's writing to the church. He's writing to Christians. And you see that right at the top of the letter of James, which, by the way, I'm now in the book of James. I made it. Here's what he says in in the first two verses. He said, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings, dear brothers and sisters. Um, These aren't just Jewish brethren. He's not making a a reference to people due to their ethnicity, their Jewish heritage. He's writing as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So who he's addressing uh, as a follower of Jesus are other followers of Jesus. And he doesn't try to break down salvation, you know, to them because these are people who already know what it means to be a Christian. He doesn't need to explain any of that. And I'm not going to explain any of that to you either because I'm addressing people who are sitting here this morning and you are people by and large who I assume are on the same page with me. But even though those Christians know the information, they have the knowledge just like us, it ain't enough. That's not enough. There will be evidence that your salvation is real. And we're going to get further into that, but, but let me say here at the, at the outset that James and Paul, I just mentioned Paul a minute ago, you know, they're, they're not in disagreement. This comes up a lot when you read the book of James. I've read that uh, Martin Luther didn't want this book in the canon uh, because of this question. He changed his mind, but, uh, you know, Paul is always asking and he's always answering the question, how do we receive salvation? And Paul is always answering that question over and over. He says that we get, we receive salvation by grace through faith alone. But that's not what James is asking here. He's not asking, how do we receive salvation? He's asking, how do we verify? How do we know that we have received salvation? That's what he's asking them. And his answer is what I'm going to be looking at. And it is salvation is verified by works. Salvation is received by faith and it's verified by works. So whatever changed on the inside sooner or later is going to make it to the outside in the way that you comport yourselves and the stuff that you do. So there's, there's not some kind of, you know, theological, biblical conflict going on here. Two different questions being answered. All right, I got that set up, so let's meet James. Okay, I'm setting you up for the next month, by the way, so cut me some slack here. All right. And by the way, I could do this for hours. You'd be sleeping there, taking lunch, but I like... We're going to look at James. By the way, the uh, first thing is, I guess, you know, his name isn't James. Um, that's the Anglicanized version of his name. Sometimes you think of people differently when you hear their names. You know, we always talk about Mary and Joseph. You know, we were talking about them the last several weeks, right? But, you know, it's different when you hear, you know, Miriam and Josephi. They sound more Jewish because they are, you know. Uh, J- James, uh, his name is actually... Iacobus, Iacobus. It's basically Jacob, but we've Anglicanized it. We call him James, and he's good with that. Uh, <laughs> call me anything you want. I made Fabian the head of uh, his department at the at Vanderbilt a couple couple months ago. <laughs> Whatever we call him, it makes no difference. Just, James doesn't care what you call him, uh, but uh, all all the letter says about him is this: Hi, I'm James. A slave of God and of Jesus. 
Uh, the New Testament actually has four people named James. One of them was a disciple of Jesus. Uh, I don't have time to go into what uh, all these four people were. Uh, I'll just skip to what the early church said. And they said that this James, who wrote this letter, is the brother of Jesus. Of course, when we say brother, we mean half-brother, right? Okay. Paul, in Galatians 1, talks about meeting James. He talks about meeting the Lord's brother. And by, by the time that Paul meets James, James is a pillar of the church at Jerusalem. He's a man of stature. He's a man of impeccable reputation. He is very well respected by everybody. He's a man who spent so much time in prayer on his knees that his nickname is Camel Knees. But James was not a follower of Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, as I said, James was Jesus' brother. Mary says that, it's Mary. Uh, Matthew says that Mary gave birth to Jesus, quote, her firstborn, close quote. So it implies that there are others born after that, in spite of what the Roman Catholic Church might teach. Mark 6 asks the question, it says, isn't that the carpenter, Jesus, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judah, and Simon, and his sisters? Uh, James is first on that list, and some would say that that implies that he might have been the eldest, the older of the brothers. Uh, Be that as it may, James nor his brothers thought highly of Jesus' ministry. Uh, three of the Gospels have, have passages that make you think that they thought Jesus would be a bit loony, a little crazy, cray-cray. They didn't believe him. Even after he's fed the 5,000, after he's healed people, after he's walked on water, you know, after he's spoken the words of eternal life, the brothers over in, in John chapter 7 are telling him, you know what, Jesus? Uh, why don't you just go on over to Judea and do your thing over there and let it be proven if you really are from God? And in verse 5, they say, it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, we all know that if uh, the Bible teaches this, you know, a prophet is without honor in his own country. Could you imagine what it would be like uh, in your own family. Jesus never got a spanking when he was growing up. <laughs> his, his brothers didn't believe him. Uh, I actually find this to be a pretty good clue that some of the wild things that you can read about Jesus in extra biblical legend and you know some of those Coptic gospels and things that you can go out and buy today, you know, like there's one called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Um, I find that their disbelief in Jesus is actually confirmation that these writings are not true because these writings were discarded early by the, by the early church. They're not in the Bible canon. There's a reason. There's, there's wild tales. Here's one. It's basically telling, this is from the infancy of Thomas uh, gospel. It's basically saying that you've got this very precocious, you know, kind of seven-year-old Jesus somewhere in there who makes some clay birds. Makes birds out of clay, but then he brings them to life. That yarn, by the way, made it into the Quran also. Uh, there was another one where some little kid bumps into Jesus, and just like Jesus cursed the fig tree, he cursed the little kid, and the little kid's body withered into a corpse. Oops. You know. it's, it's, it's crazy. And the early church recognized that these accounts were lacking what they called the ring of truth. Yeah. Yeah, they're not true. But I'm just saying that, that if that kind of wild, uh, miraculous stuff was going on accidentally in the house, oops, I made a clay pigeon fly away. Um, uh, uh, if that was going on in the house with Jesus and his brothers and sisters, then I think it would have been a lot easier for, for James and his brothers and sisters to have known about that and to believed in, the, in him later. But the Bible records that they find his ministry difficult to believe because 
they had been raised with him and they knew him. Not to mention that the Bible is very clear that the first public you know, uh, uh, miracle that Jesus did in, in his ministry was when his mom made him do one, if you will, at the wedding in, in Cana. So there you got, you got James. He's not a believer through Jesus' earthly ministry, but something happened. You read about it in Acts 1.14 that after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after Jesus meets with many, after he has ascended into to heaven, his followers are at a meeting in the upper room. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit just as Jesus had instructed them to do. And we read this in Acts 1.14. It says, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, the word brothers there can also be translated to read brothers and sisters. So something has happened. What has happened? Well, Paul tells the church at Corinth that after Jesus rose from the dead, this is first Corinthians 15, 5. He says that, that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the God, then to all the apostles. So James was in that upper room because Jesus sought him out after the resurrection. And James was never the same. He's there when the Holy Spirit falls on the day of of Pentecost. He became the leader of the church at Jerusalem. He's leading the church as it comes under vicious persecution. So vicious that the church begins to disperse out of Jerusalem. Many flee Jerusalem and they're scattering. But James stays. And ultimately James is going to be killed because of the influence that he's having there in Jerusalem. And the same Pharisees that were afraid of Jesus and hated Jesus were afraid of the brother of Jesus as well. And they began to hate James. And the early church historian Eusebius quotes three different sources that tell of the death of James in Jerusalem. Uh, This is kind of a paraphrase, but... This is one of the accounts. It said that the Pharisees took him to the top of the temple, took James to the top of the temple. Uh, or they had him taken to the top of the temple. And they stood below and shouted this. They said, the people are led astray after Jesus, the crucified one. Tell us, what is this way, Jesus? And James answered, why do you ask me about Jesus, the son of man? He sits in the heaven at the right hand of the great power, and he will soon come on the clouds of heaven. And the people began shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Well, the Pharisees freak out at that response. They are not liking that. And so they have him pushed off the top of the temple. It should have killed him. Unfortunately, it didn't. So as James is lying on the ground crumpled, a bunch of the Pharisees on the ground begin to stone him. And one of, the, one of the priests who's there tells the other ones to stop. And he says, what are you doing? The righteous one is praying for you. But it's too late. And we're told that, that a fuller, that is somebody who, is, who did laundry, took a club that he used to beat his clothes. It's called a fuller's club. And he smashed James in the head, killing him with one blow. So after this encounter with the living, risen Jesus of Nazareth, James spent his life ministering to the church, and ultimately he gave his life for his master. That's James. He's beloved. He's respected. Ultimately, he's martyred. And... As the believers are being persecuted there in Jerusalem, they begin to scatter. And their leader, James, while he's, before he's martyred, he's writing to them in the midst of this horrible persecution, in the midst of very hard times. And don't gloss over 
that hard time. So easy to read them. The people were scattered. He wrote to the people scattered. They, they weren't scattering because they were looking for, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to relocate to get a new job opportunity. That's not what's going on. This is life and death struggle going on. There is fear. There is, there is absolute persecution. People are dying. And James writes to them. He doesn't write to them as I, James, leader of the church, first church of Jerusalem, head pastor, head deacon, head everything. I am Dr. James, son of Mary, bro of Jesus. You know, he doesn't do that. Most reverend Dr. James. It's, it's humble. Remember, we talked about attitudes of salvation that'll show up. Here's one humility. He just says, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all he says about himself. You, you might find it interesting. If you don't, I find it interesting that James is the earliest writing in the New Testament. It's written around the year 50 AD. This is only you know, 17 years, maybe less, after Jesus rises from the dead. It's about 13, 14 years after Stephen was, was martyred there in the church and the, and the church begins to flee um, and scatter. And this very first epistle that's given to the church, the very first writing of the New Testament is calling people to deal with the reality of their salvation. We need real salvation, not Fake salvation. We need actual, real, saving faith. It's, it's kind of a manual, if you will, of various tests that the church can use to help people not be led into error and to make sure that they don't have some false sense of salvation. Now, I, I've read several commentaries that, that seem to suggest that James doesn't actually have a theme in his writing. They're going, well, you know, he's kind of writing this letter of, you know, wisdom tidbits and some kind of, kind of some practical hints for daily living. That's what he's doing. It's like a New Testament book of Proverbs or something. I don't think so. And I do think it's eminently practical. This is a, is a wonderful book. But I'm saying what you're going to read if you read this book and what you're going to hear as we teach this is that this isn't wisdom tidbits. No, this is a test. Are you living what you claim to believe? I think I've set it up. There's your setup. So I'll be brief here. Just let me, let me show you the first test that he mentions. This is James 1 verse 2. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For, when you, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Now, part of me sometimes is tempted to, to read this as pablum. You know, well, you know, Larry, you know, you know, it's like, you know, if you're going through hell, just keep going, buddy. You know, tough times don't last, tough people do. God shuts the door, he opens a window. James is not writing trite tidbits here. Again, these... Is written. This is written to people who have had their lives ripped up. They're scattered. Loved ones have been killed. It's not pablum. It's not trite. All of us at some point are going to look into the eyes of agony. And we have to know how to face it. It says, when troubles come your way. Other translations say, divers' troubles. We're not talking about scuba divers here. We're talking diverse, different types 
of trials, various trials. The trials just keep coming. And it's not if, it's when. It's not a specific type of trouble per se. It could be anything. It could be death or illness or financial or emotional or relational, war, setbacks, climate control, I don't know, temptations, moral failure. It could be anything. Trials. Some are more devastating than others. But you are going to have them. Some of you are in the midst of them. Actually, I think the reality is we're all dealing with trials and temptations constantly, whether they be big or small. Why? Well, Larry, uh, I think we have troubles because it's a test that God's used to, to see what's in our heart. I don't think so. God doesn't need a test to know our heart, right? I think the first reason that trials come, and yes, it's a test, as James points out, but not so that God can figure something out, so we can figure something out, right? We need to know the strength of our faith, you know, and when all hell comes against you, it's going to reveal some cracks probably in that faith. Hard times, temptations, tests, they, they strip away all types of normalcy from our lives. And what they do is they expose us to our real selves. And they can expose the real selves of other people too around you. I'll hear things like, well, you know, Larry, uh, I didn't know how much I leaned on my mom's faith till she was gone. I didn't know how much, you know, I trusted in my health until I got sick. I didn't know how important money was to my life until I didn't have any. When the truth is revealed, we can clearly see that only God is unshaken. Only God is unmoved. And that's where we need to cling, right? Not on people, not on our friends, not on our money, not on our good health. We cling to God. If we pass the test, whatever it might be, we graduate in in our spiritual maturity. The next time that test comes along, we've aced it before, we'll get it next time even better. That would just rip on through it. Well, what happens if I fail the test? If you're a true follower of Jesus, does God let you take the test over? Bank on it. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. I mean, think of James. James. Over his entire life, well, not his entire life, his early life, he kept failing the test. He needed to know who Jesus was and support him. Fail, 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 fail. He's nuts. Fail. You know. But God was gracious, and he kept administering the test. So I'll be really clear in case that wasn't clear enough. Just because you have failed in some areas doesn't mean that God is done with you. Let me say that one again. Just because you failed in some area doesn't mean that God is done with you. Right? But he wants you to pass the test and graduate. The test assist us, not God, to do some type of uh, inventory, if you will, and evaluate where our faith needs to be strengthened. That's what we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks. It's like when Habakkuk, you know, is faced with this horrible time and he's realizing that his, that his people are about to be wiped out by the Chaldeans. And he speaks into that fear 
And he speaks into that devastation these amazing words. This is Habakkuk 3.17. He says, Even though the fig trees have no blossoms, and there are no grapes on the vine, even though the olive crop fails, and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields, and the cattle barns are empty... By the way, this is all really bad times, folks. This is devastation. Even though all that's going on, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. He's going, look, even if everything that's normal to me ceases, I will be joyful. And then in the next verse, he takes this uh, a bit further. He makes a note to the worship leader. He says this in verse 19. He says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. For the choir director, this prayer is to be accompanied by stringed instruments. It's like a little asterisk. (laughs) For entertainment purposes only. Must be boy. (laughs) He's going, not only will I rejoice in this mayhem, I'm going to be as sure-footed as a mountain goat through this mess. And you know what? This is praise. This is pra- choir director. Let's sing it. It's a trial. It's a test. The test is for me. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to pass the test by trusting Jesus. Second reason we have trials. Trials keep us humble. We think we're strong. We think we're self-sufficient. Then all hell breaks loose on us. And we find out we're not all quite that. Right, Paul experienced that, the, the, the infamous thorn in the flesh. He wanted it removed. It was a trial. He says it was. God says, uh, nope, I'm not taking it away. I'm not removing it. My grace is sufficient for you. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he says, I was given a thorn in my flesh to keep me from becoming proud. Trials, tests, keep us humble. Third reason we have trials. I don't know if this is a reason or just the end result of a trial, but trials tend to deter us or to wean us off of things that are just not important. You thought the most important thing in your life was fill in the blank. And then the doctor said, sir, no, ma'am, there's nothing I can do for you. Great pain, great hurt, great trials come. And you reach out for the things of the world that meant so much. Your career, your money, your friends, your reputation. And you find that you're grabbing at nothing. Those things aren't going to help. If you pass the test, you realize that those things have held a place that is too important. A place that has been too exalted in your life. And you're weaning them from that place of importance in your life. Fourth reason we have trials. And I'll stop expounding. Let me just list some stuff. Uh, Trials cause us to long for a better place. Heaven, specifically. Can I get a witness? Fifth reason. Trials help us to help others when they are suffering. Now we get it. We go through something hard. We get, now we understand what they're going through. Now we can sympathize. Now we can empathize. Sixth reason. And this is where James drills down a bit. Trials come so that we can develop perseverance. You pass this test, you're stronger for the next one. You graduate. You're more confident that God will actually complete what he's begun in you. You know that nothing can keep you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I know there's a lot more reasons that we go into for the the why of trials. But James says this, and I think this is where the rubber hits the road. This is James 1.12. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterwards. They will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So just like Jesus led those people who gathered on the side of a, of a hill through a test in, in his Sermon on the Mount. 
It was a test to lead people who think they are right with God through a thought process that would prove they were not right with God so that they could repent and get right with God and be saved. Well, 20 years later, James is challenging people in the very same way for the very same purpose. And I believe the Holy Spirit is here this morning and bringing it to us this morning. Do you have tests going on? They have a purpose. They are not for nothing. And the ultimate purpose will cause you to examine, just like you would examine gold, silver, a $100 bill. You're going to examine this thing of eternal value. You're going to examine your faith and make sure it's genuine and real. The bottom line question is going to be, are you saved? I'm talking to Christians just like James was. Is your salvation real? Is it authentic? Well, Larry, how would I know? Well, that's what I've been talking about for 40 minutes. <laughs> take the test. Read this book of James. And take these questions as a test. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what needs to be changed. He'll tell you. Some things need to be added. Some things need to be taken out. And then let him change you. He'll show you. You've got to do it. And ask yourself again on this first day of 2023. Am I living what I claim to believe? Yes or no? Don't lie to yourself. Don't accept the counterfeit bill. Don't be sold a bill of goods. Find the treasure and pay whatever you have to to buy it. Patiently endure the tests and receive the crown of life. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace Church, you can visit us online at gracechurchnashville.com and find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash gracechurchnash. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time.